ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the uh, final sessions this afternoon. We're going to have a panel discussion now that will go for the next hour or so. We'll have uh, an opportunity for your questions for about the last 20 minutes or so. So get thinking about those as we're discussing, discussing rather this uh, question of why Indigenous languages matter. And then after that, we'll hear from the boss here, the Director General of the Library, to wrap us up and bring this uh, two days of what have been pretty important conversations to a close. Uh, the people on the panel, the distinguished guests with me, you've heard and you've seen over the last couple of days. Nicholas Evans sitting next to me is a professor, a laureate fellow and distinguished professor of linguistics at the Australian National University and also directs the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for the Dynamics of Language and as you've heard has been working in the space of linguistics, of language, of maintenance and uh, I think for, for many, many years. I think he described himself before as a mechanic of, of languages. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome him. Professor Rowinia Higgins is appointed Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Wellington's Victoria University in 2016, has been leading the charge in New Zealand of bringing ma the Māori language into greater exposure and to also ensuring that question of maintenance is front and centre through a role in the Commission and as, as an advisory uh, to members of Parliament as well. Ladies and gentlemen, please make a welcome. And Professor Jacqueline Troy is an Argu woman here from the Snowy Rivers area, uh, Snowy Mountains area of New South Wales, and <laughs> Director of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Research at the University of Sydney, who's spent her the greater part of her lifetime in linguistics and language in a around the national curriculum and, and the ways that we integrate that work into schools, as many have been asking those questions about. So I know that you'll be keen to talk about that this afternoon. Please make her welcome. Now, as we embark on this 2019, the United Nations Year of Indigenous Languages, <coughs> it seems uh, crucial uh, that languages have such a pivotal role in our society. But uh, to step back from that, to start us off this afternoon, why are they important? Okay. Well, um, I should say I, I've got a book on that in the foyer, but I'm very... Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sales, the sales pitch. Yeah, the yeah, 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 sales pitch very quickly, but, I, but I'm less a sales pitch than an apology for the title, which I really <laughs> don't like the first part of, which is, you know, dying words, which I really don't like. Uh, and with every year that passes, I like it less because it gives this negative view. But the second part is, is endangered languages and what they have to tell us. And I wanted it to be an upbeat book, mm. actually. I wish I'd chosen another title, but I hope it doesn't put people off. Perhaps for the reprint. Yeah, for the reprint, exactly. Um, but um, there are so many angles one can take on this, and I'm just going to take, take one because of um, lack of time. Uh, but I think one of the most important is that as you get inside uh, an Indigenous language, you rewire your brain and rejig your soul and you begin to see the world in another way mm -hmm. and the deeper you go into it uh, the more profoundly that happens and we hear a lot of talk about you know learning to speak another language but there's also that whole process of learning to listen to the words of another language and to find your way inside it and I think that's a very crucial and sometimes neglected part of the enterprise. That is, you're not just saying, you know, what's the, the w name or the word in this language for such and such an English term 
you know, uncle or such and such a tree or whatever, because that is just reproducing the English mindset with new words that are pronounced differently. And the, the profound thing that's important to do is to start to see the world through the concepts that were carried on and developed over you know, eons through um, speakers of the world's indigenous languages. And I'd just like to give you a few examples uh, from my own experience of how little by little that's changed the way I've seen things. So I, I started off working on uh, Mornington Island in Queensland and I was very lucky, like, a bit like what Peter was talking about before, at, to be adopted into a Kaido family uh, as a son uh, because the Darwin Mudanathi and May Mudanathi ha didn't have kids uh, of their own for various reasons. Uh, and they tried to teach me as much as they could. And the things I found hardest weren't learning to pronounce the language or to work out the grammar. As a linguist, you're trained to do that. But it's training your mind and your attention to look at different things. And one of those which is... Uh, very typical of a lot of Australian languages is never to say, you know, you're on my right or something like that, but to locate you in uh, compass mm -hmm. space to my east and my west, or even if there's a s several people, so, you know, the, the woman at, at the east end or mm -hmm. just coming back from the east. Uh, so the language is putting you in your place. Ha that's half of place is space. And the other half of place is kinship space, locating you not as a named person because in lots of communities I've worked in in Australia, names are, are rarely used uh, outside sort of nicknames or sometimes, you know, whitefellow names but sometimes people don't use those at all. You'll have a skin name or, or you'll be akin to someone so it's relational rather than individual. So that's the second part of putting you in your place. And then as you uh, start to deal with the world of nature, uh, there are things which you find in the vocabulary. So in a, in a lot of uh, languages of Arnhem Land, you will have the same name for uh, a plant and a fish, for example. So bogon is like a native white apple tree and it's also a fish that's called in English a spangled grunter because the spangled grunter eats the fallen fruit of the white apple tree into the, into the creek. So if you're mm -hmm. wanting to go fishing, you know, best move is to look around for the tree. Mm -hmm. You'll find a pool. There'll be some of those fruit there and the spangled grunters will be coming up to eat it. And it's not that people have any confusion at all about you know, trees and, and, and fish, but it's just that the, to survive... Uh, living off uh, nature, I mean, you, your best technology is your knowledge about ecology, uh, that very close observation about connections. The same, if it's the same word for a particular flower of a tree, or tree and flower, and, and a yam, let's say, or, or a grasshopper and a yam, w you need to know when to harvest the yam, or, your, or the yam will be too bitter, mm -hmm. not edible, but if you tie it, to a grasshopper, so like yamich, a particular greenhorn grasshopper, longhorn grasshopper, that's when you dig up the, this yam is when you hear it calling out because that's just the time when it's sweet 
and right to eat. So all those observations about connections in, in nature, each language, each um, environment, will have made its own studies of that over, over thousands of years as people have you know, made those observations and then enshrined them in the vocabulary. And then uh, just a final example I'd like to make is, I suppose, the, the arrogance of mainstream uh, societies about our over-ability to determine nature and to determine the world, and rather than just accepting ourselves as, as part of it. And uh, if you see uh, a turtle going up and trying to lay an egg, this is some, something I saw that was quite a poignant and sad moment um, on Croker Island in the Northern Territory, although the speakers who I heard this sentence from were from Goulburn Island, they, sp they spoke Maung, and this poor turtle came up and there was a whole concrete ramp that had been set there so that boats could be launched. And the t this great big turtle, maybe she was 100 years old, mm. belly full of eggs, was trying to dig the hole to lay her eggs and just hitting the, the concrete. Yeah. And uh, in English, if you describe that situation, you might say something like, the turtle was unable to lay her eggs, you know, the, <coughs> the concrete ramp. But the way you would say it in, uh, in Maung, you say something like, you know, the hardness of the earth frustrated or you know, blocked her egg-laying attempts. And there's a special verb which takes as its object the turtle, the mother turtle. And the subject is the hard ground that prevents this happen, happening. And it tracks from you know, causes that lie in the natural world onto animate beings, in this case a turtle rather than a human being. But the, the crucial thing is that we are not just trying to push all the agency onto our world of, of humans, but we're listening out. So those are just some you know, of hundreds of, of ways in which as you feel your way, as you learn your way into you know, these incredible uh, languages, it just changes your way. You, you start to see things that you hadn't seen before. Uh, you start to notice and put together things that uh, weren't there before. And as we now take these very positive moves of putting um, Australian Aboriginal languages into the curriculum and similar things are happening in other parts of the world in this year of Indigenous languages, I think it's very important that we train this next you know, younger generation who are very keen to learn them, as, as we've seen, and it's a marvellous thing to listen their way in because that's a little hard to do. Uh, so for me, that's the, the most important mm. thing that these languages have to offer. Yeah, thank mm. you. Uh, Rowenia, why do Indigenous languages matter? Um, well, I suppose from a Paiute language planning and policy journey, so from a micro level, um, the blood that runs through my veins is connected to this place and being connected to the land where my language derives from allows me to be connected to that space. Uh, it gives me a sense of my own identity. Um, it defines me, and Paul mentioned this yesterday in his speech around um, being able to define ourselves and our location through our language, mm. whether it's dialectual or another language. 
um, and it connects me not only to the environment, but it connects me to my past um, and my present, but also allows me to think about my future. At a more macro level, um, and why as a nation or as nations we should be celebrating and supporting um, initiatives like the um, uh, UNESCO's uh, Year of Indigenous Languages is in a, uh, because globalisation has kind of made this world very small, um, it's also started to homogenise us as peoples um, because people can get access to us from all over the globe on their phone mm -hmm. and start to um, create their own languages around who we are and starting to define us. And so one of the things that I certainly advocate in New Zealand is that te reo Māori is the only distinguishing feature that distinguish, distinguishes us as a country, as a nation, at a global level. So our language is everywhere. It's in our geography. You can't avoid te reo Māori um, in our country. Um, but it's a way, when you're a very tiny nation um, trying to uh, stand out in the world, um, you need something that defines you. And for us as a nation, I truly believe that te reo Māori is our most definitive feature. So when you see us at a global level, you see the haka. Everybody knows the haka. I mean, it's in the exhibition upstairs is the, the one thing that is quite definitive. But the haka is premised on the language. So the movements are nothing. You can't do the haka without words. Mm. So you need the language to be able to convey that message. So for me, um, when you're a very tiny nation um, near the bottom of the world, uh, te reo Māori is our most distinguishing feature in our country. Mm. Jackie, what about for you? <laughs> well, um, it's hard following this because I, I agree absolutely with everything you just said and I, um, that book, which shall remain nameless, <laughs> uh, there's a wonderful um, uh, sentence in there where you say um, that if uh, every time a language speaker dies, it's not just an encyclopedia of knowledge that goes, but an entire library. It's like the Library of Alexandria being burnt to the ground again. So. Um, I travel the world meeting Indigenous people all over the world um, and I am endlessly struck by this. It's like, I guess, youth hosteling or something. You travel around meeting people of like mind with like travelling um, patterns and, um, you know, we, I just sat down at lunch talking to Auntie Elaine with my mum and Lara who I think had maybe my a brief moment, put down her iPhone. <coughs> but um, we talked <laughs> about... Not. We talked new generation about communicating. <laughs> it's a generational communicator. But she was listening, um, mm. because every, every so often she interjects. So, but, and that's the thing, you know, we, <laughs> we sat and had a discussion about family and people's names and who was who and where are you from and, you know, which families connected with which, which families. Now, I do this all over the world. I go somewhere... I thought, I was just saying, uh, sort of thinking um, whimsically that um, I have just started doing some, um, I guess, field work that 
don't know that that's what I'd intended to do, but I went to the north of Pakistan thinking, ha, I'm not going to fit in here at all. <laughs> I'm going to be completely different. For the once, first time in my life, I'm not going to look like anyone or be like anyone. Well, bugger me, I'm now Torwali. Um, so <laughs> I'm, um, oh, you look Pakhtun, you know, and uh, your daughter looks Kalasha. And, well, you know, we all, we start doing the family stuff. Who's connected to, to who? You know, so this is what Indigenous people do everywhere. Like, what, so, oh, right, so, and one of the first things I learned to say in Torwali was, Kuyu Hamadu, the dog is barking, how do you shut it up, you know? <laughs> like dogs, there's dogs. Universality. Every, mm. Universality of dogs, yeah. <laughs> Everywhere you go, there's dogs. So any Aboriginal person in the room here will be yeah, laughing their ass off. I said, yeah, dogs, everywhere you go. And then there's, you know, the kids who are all constantly invading your space and wanting to learn about you and teach you something and that kind of... Um, that congenial sort of um, inclusivity that goes with being Indigenous. I often wonder what is the difference between being Indigenous or not being Indigenous. And I think it is, um, you know, what, what you were both talking about, that sort of, it's, it, it's a kind of set of identifiers and language is a core identifier. Language puts you into the mental mind space, the mindset of, of the community. Um, the Kuyu doesn't just Hamadu, but the female um, Kuyu Hamadi. So, all right, mm. there's a gender distinction. What other distinctions happen between male and female? And it, it leads you into this whole discussion around placing yourself in society and, you know, language places you. And, and then as you become, you go from being, well, you've learnt that now, you need to greet me in Tordwali, you know, Chik Hai Hal Chi, you know, Asab Chi. That's what you say. I say, asab tu. You know, from there on, it's it's a down. It's just a downhill slide. You're just no longer are you the um, person who's just popped in um, for a bit of a holiday or something. You're part of the community, and that's what indigenous people do. And we do it through our languages because they are much more around the world. The indigenous languages of the world um, are they're older than most of these more recent languages like English. Um, the language of most of the invading <laughs> um, countries of the world that have taken over large tracts of indigenous land. Um, our languages um, have ways of making everybody have a place and everything have a place. Um, everybody's point of view has a place. Um, everybody's musical traditions, everybody's performative practices, everything kind of has a place and if it hasn't, it becomes incorporated. Mm. So. Um, whereas, you know, I, I'm sure that those of you who don't come from an Indigenous background would know that, you know, you go visiting someone and that's it. It's a fairly shallow encounter, particularly if it's a sort of first-time encounter and it's not going to be continued. It's, it's never like that for us as Indigenous people. You've always got... There's always going to be continuity. You, you never just come and go and leave and are never thought of again. And um, our language is kind of... Um, ensure that you, you can't be. Once you start speaking our languages, you become part of our communities and you, you learn the ways of our people. And, and that actually then gives you access to Indigenous communities worldwide. There is a, a global indigeneity that we all um, seem to fit into. And I, I wish that the whole of the world could experience that because it is really like something like youth hosteling, not that I've ever actually done that, but, <laughs> no, but I have, you know, I've done, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done some wonderful travelling with my mother and it's, um, it's very much always about being in the place and 
Um, it's that kind of understanding the place, and that's what our languages do. They give you a, a depth of understanding that um, both um, mm. Nick and Ruinia were just saying that um, brings you into the space of being Indigenous. And I really do want everybody to have that feeling because I think there's a terrible, vast loneliness out there of... Um, I'm going to say the Western world because in many ways that's what it is. It's the world of um, European imperialism particularly. Um, and I think it's left a whole lot of people stranded in cities with nobody to talk to. No kuyu hamadu, no dogs, mm. no nothing. Um, what a terrible way to live. Mm. Um, so um, our, la our languages are important because they can connect people and make you feel worthwhile and um, part of humanity. You've all touched on aspects of identity and how they're inextricably linked with language, with understanding who you are, where your place is and how you fit into the world around you. What about when we think about the links to health and well-being, uh, Rowinia? Um, so there's been a lot of studies at home about um, the connection between well-being and language. And I think one of the things that, um, as a marginalised group, um, that we don't focus in on is how our kids who enter into immersion learning, for example, succeed. And um, that whole education um, in the language and that sense of pride and mm. who they are um, is always downplayed. And yet the results show that when children are raised in their language and continue in their language, they tend to do better in New Zealand than um, when they're in the mainstream. Um, but like I said earlier today around marginalising immersion schooling um, through policy um, has that adverse effect where our people still buy into the value of our language in a mainstream system and still believing that their children uh, will fail if they don't know how to speak English. Now, English is so, uh, it's everywhere. You can't avoid English despite your best mm. efforts to uh, raise your children in the only in te reo Māori as their first language. But we buy into the um, belief system of mainstream that in order to succeed, you must be like the mainstream, um, as opposed to believing in your own language and culture. Um, I was saying to Nick before, um, Ray Harlow, who's one of our um, linguists, uh, mechanics um, in New Zealand, talks about New Zealand being dog doggedly monolingual in practice and attitude. Um, he said it was just as bad here. Um, just the whole notion of understanding what bilingualism is mm. and mm. Um, and this need to kind of always just be uh, English speaking. Um, often I've done lectures to students and at a conferences about how I describe New Zealand in many ways um, when it comes to language, uh, more English than the English. So uh, as a colony, we are, um, we're worse than the mothership in terms of if you go if you hop on the tube, you can hear lots of languages. You'd be lucky if you hear English most of the time mm. because multilingualism in the northern hemisphere is not 
it's not an issue. But in New Zealand, and I'm suspecting here in Australia, that whole misunderstanding of uh, multilingualism, bilingualism, um, just kind of does people's heads in. And so they kind of revert to, okay, I've got to stay in my box, stay in my lane, and I expect you all to be in the same lane mm -hmm. as me. So it's a, it's a really hard one, just kind of unpacking um, languages in general, mm. even let alone indigenous languages. Uh, Nick, to expand upon that point, uh, the Yulungu people of Arnhem Land have a term, a concept around walking in both worlds, of in mm. Yulungu Mata and in the English world as well. How much of that is a consolidation and or, or a model that might be able to be used in Australia? Yeah, I, I think it's a really important model. So I guess you're talking about this idea of gunma yeah. uh, education that uh, Raymacha, Marika Munungoric and others mm -hmm. elaborated and it's a beautiful metaphor of the mingling of the incoming salt water in estuary with the outgoing fresh water and the special swirl and spume that it creates and that wouldn't exist if the two weren't both there and mingling and I think that you know the the real well, one of the many tragedies of sort of monolingual arrogant uh, settler mentalities is they import a monolingualist mentality which tended not to be the case in indigenous communities. I won't say it never was, because there are some iso literally isolated exceptions, people on islands, mm -hmm. uh, but most of the time people traditionally spoke two, three, four, five, six, eight, ten languages and structured things like ceremonies, like what Jackie was talking about, where let's say a ceremonial song cycle might have to progress over seven or eight nights mm. of successive performance and each leg of the performance would be performed in a different language and only by the people who spoke that language. So you had to get everyone together in order to perform it, which you know you needed for all sorts of reasons and that meant you had to be on good enough terms with people uh, that you could persuade them to mm. come along, uh, but also to recognise that in their language was knowledge, and special things that you didn't have in your own and vice versa. That's a type of respect that people don't gather to themselves or into one culture, everything that there is to be known. It's a slightly uncomfortable position for a library mm. because the whole <laughs> idea of a library is we assemble <laughs> it. But, you know, that, that, that's another whole debate. But I think to really make progress on this, uh, there's the issue of saying how do we restore, you know, those languages that need a leg up, mm. you know, like Ngunawal or Māori or my, from my own ancestral language, um, Welsh in Wales, uh, you know, that getting stamped out or could or, and, and are struggling back. And there's one view, take people away from the world of English or Spanish or Indonesian or Tokisan or whatever the dominant language is so that they can just be in this new... Uh, bubble, but I don't think that's the only way, and that, uh, that is if you take the view that humans, since our earliest steps, maybe not even as humans, but maybe as hominins, you know, way back in time before we diverged from Neanderthals and Denisovans and all these people, that 
multilingualism was there right from the beginning. That's my view. I, I personally think that language evolved through multilingualism, through pooling the ideas and the sounds and the structures that different groups invented and came together, and that as far back as you go, that's how things were. It actually, monolingualism is uh, an anomaly mm. that came about once societies could be big enough that they could create their own worlds and that they could homogenise and that they could have emperors or kings <coughs> or queens stipulating that all education or all legal matters or whatever had to be conducted in a particular language. So then the view that monolingualism is natural became internalised and exported <coughs> with colonialism. And unwinding that, I think most Indigenous people know that it's not true and that... Yeah, sure, just bring them on. How, how many more languages? Just let's keep mm. learning more. That's just a very traditional attitude and even traditional is the attitude that you don't just stop when you're a kid. You keep learning through into your 60s and 70s and 80s. That's a normal thing. Uh, whereas the dominant ideology, let's say, in a House of Parliament that we saw with Malcolm Turnbull struggling to speak and get others to listen, tends to be a belief that if we have Aboriginal kids in Australia or equivalents elsewhere, maybe Māori kids in New Zealand, all over the world, you know, Melanesian kids in Indonesia, spending time learning their own language, that is valuable time taken away from learning the national language rather than time that we build mm. a richer and more um, interconnected brain that they'll end up speaking English or Indonesian or whatever better through their knowledge of the other languages. So I think that's a big part of the, the fight. Yeah. Jackie, I'm keen for you to weigh in on that and also perhaps comment on the challenges and maybe the opportunities that provides in working towards changes to the curriculum and how that happens and uh, this discussion around bilingualism and whether that's something that we'll ever get to. Well, I think the point is, I think when you just said that you um, step outside a kind of more formal environment like this, where we're all speaking English and we're all expected to be understanding what um, we're saying in English, and you go outside and get on a bus or a train or public transport anywhere, and anywhere in these so-called monolingual worlds, there's this world of multilingualism that's the reality. Uh, the biggest problem um, for me is that um, the mantra of this country, it's, it's unfortunately the mantra of, of, as you say, most of the big nation states. Again, Pakistan, where I'm starting to do some research, um, it's kind of horrifying, 74 languages um, at least. Um, most of them quite strong, some with 20 million speakers. Oh, I wish. But, um, but, you know, these languages could disappear in a few generations because they're so devalued. Um, that's really horrifying. Um, this language, Tordwali, 125,000 speakers. Um, a colleague of mine is with his family in Karachi at the moment, and he sent me a little clip of his son who's growing up speaking Tordwali in the community, and his nephew who's growing up speaking mostly Urdu and a bit of Tordwali in Karachi. And there it's quite clear this kid is has got partial command of his native mm. language, Tordwali. Um, and is code switching a lot with Urdu, or mm. really just is not able to speak um, his his um, community's language. And 
um, this man has suddenly realised that what I'd been warning him about would be right there um, for him to confront. Um, he said, what was that word? Glottofudgy. Language eating, you know, like, <laughs> yes, yes, um, the, and, and it's the, as I predicted, it's the, the mothers saying you must learn Urdu because that's the national, the national language. Mm. So even, I mean, a part of the problem with um, maintaining um, multilingualism, um, which is our natural state, I absolutely agree with you, um, uh, Nick, it's just, um, you know, people really do love learning languages. We all love singing and making art and listening to all kinds of other media that we communicate in. That they're just other languages. Mm. And this is what humans do. We use our brains very creatively around communication. So, of course, multilingualism, multimodal learning is normal for us. Um, so to deny the human mind the, the, the moment and the ability to do that is actually to stifle our intelligence um, to restrict our um, capacity that we've developed over millions of years as um, the kinds of hominids we now are, <laughs> um, or sapiens, sapiens, whatever. But um, we, um, we will actually start to, I think, <laughs> make ourselves less intelligent because our brains won't have to do the kinds of clever things they've had to do in getting to the evolutionary state mm. we're at now. So um, when you see nation states thinking that they're heading themselves in a cleverer, more developed direction by imposing um, a national language that supposedly makes it easier for people to communicate, it's not, you know. So this child who's growing up in his community speaking at least four languages, age seven now, um, and no problem switching between languages and whatever language is being used, he just uses whatever anyone speaks to him in. And the other one's struggling, who's now pretty much stuck with one, maybe two languages if he's lucky, um, is just, you know, there's, there's no comparison between, I guess, the access that this other one with four or five languages has to the world and to the environment around him. You know, he knows about the north, the mountains, the environment. This is the same for our people, um, people who are Aboriginal who still speak multiple languages on a daily basis mm -hmm. are still thinking very creatively about the environment. They understand the environment. They understand their place in the environment. They understand their place in humanity in a way that people who've only got one language really don't. And you see it when people start to learn another language or go to another country where they're exposed to another language. You see people struggling because their brains are just not used to thinking in this kind of lateral creative way that being able to have access to other other ways of being gives you. Mm. Uh, I wonder if anyone had any questions that they might like to throw out to the panel. Just pop your hands up and we'll get a microphone over to you. There's the one there. Um, thanks very much to the panel. It's been really fascinating. Um, one of the things that strikes me is that you might take one step forward and two steps back. I have a friend, uh, an old, elderly woman now who was involved in bringing in bilingual <coughs> education in the Northern Territory. And that's that's now been lost, as far as she's aware. I think it's probably true. Um, you'd kn you would know um, uh, Jacqueline and Nick. So what happens when you set something in place and it all looks great and then it falls over? How do, how do you stop that happening? 
Well, the bilingual programs in the Northern Territory were stopped because there was some stupid idea that if you test kids who are not learning English in year three, because um, in those programs they were really being scaffolded towards learning English from year five on, but the NAPLAN testing meant that they are first tested in year three, and surprise, surprise, kids who are not learning English don't test well in English. Mm. I know that. Uh, what mm. was I saying about dumbing down when yeah, you yeah. learn one language? Mm. I think we've got a fairly stupid country, actually, but well, and, um, and sadly. By extension of that, there were yeah. the, it was the politics of the northern suburbs of Darwin that was dictating that's right. what was happening yeah. across the rest of the territory, and that you yeah. know, that's writ large for politics. Yeah. Isn't so it? so uh, children sorry. who were um, multilingual, multi um, lingual, including in their um, scripted literacy um, in Aboriginal languages, um, were not tested for what they knew. They were tested for something they didn't know. Mm. And, um, and it was seen to be horror, horror. These kids are going backward fast. I mean, look, I've taught in the Steiner school system and you don't even start learning to be literate until about year seven. Is it year seven? Yeah, about seven years old. Sorry, seven years old. I think it's you know early primary. But... Um, whereas um, in the broader education system, kids are meant to sort of come hard and fast with literacy from um, year one. And I, I, was, I was very sceptical about this Steiner approach. I thought there would be a bunch of illiterate children that I'd be trying to deal with. In fact, no, because they'd been taught about what literacy is. They'd been taught all these other modes of obtaining information, like Aboriginal kids do. You know, Aboriginal kids learn to literally read the country. Mm -hmm. um, they learn what if you... And, and they also learn how to share information through different kinds of modes of script, if you like, making, you know, marks in sand, um, you know, <laughs> without even asking a question, just a bit of a lip point over there, that tree, I mean, back to, well, that, that bird is associated with that tree there so that bird is what that tree is and you know there's all this sort of sort of multimodal experiential learning that just doesn't come into our broader education system so back to your point about um, what can we do in the education system get with the program and have a more aboriginal way of learning um, and certainly um, multilingual learning uh, but it's just not something that um, Unfortunately, we've, we've, we've lost in the, the wider society the capacity to really understand what that really means. And that's why it's terribly threatening when you go to a school where a bunch of kids can speak, say, five or six other languages but not, not operate very strongly in English. It's like, well, why wouldn't a child who already has five or six languages just pick up English? Like, it's actually not that hard. It's a pretty basic language. It's pretty simple. The scripting... The writing system shit, but the rest of it's easy. <laughs> you know, compared to Australian languages, it's that it's a doddle. So you know, um, I it's just a kind of complete lack of understanding in this country about what language even is. I yeah. think. Yeah, I wanted to add a couple of things to what Jackie said. I mean, first, just to agree uh, about first of all, how oppressive nationwide standardisation is through NatPlan. It really doesn't give that breathing space for culturally appropriate curricula. Uh, and secondly, that um, it, it was done in a way that really disenfranchised very, very skilled local 
people. So when bilingual education was there in the 70s and 80s, there were a lot of people from the community working in classrooms whose level of formal qualifications wasn't always so high, uh, although at least at that time quite a few were doing remote area teacher education through bachelor college and so on. They were the people who were making those classrooms work because the kids knew them, they could talk to the kids, all of that. And as things have become more and more formalised onto English, the role of those people in the classroom has been pulled back. So that th it's just like stepping away from the stated aim of improving employment of skilled Aboriginal people and improving the growth of skills uh, mm. in people from the community. The other thing I would say is that the idea of what a curriculum is was naive from the start. You're talking in this country of hundreds of languages, that's something different mm. from Aotearoa, and uh, you just multiply the number of curricula that you have to develop. And even for the best resourced ones, you're talking about a handful of, of little kids' books. Uh, sometimes there weren't even dictionaries in place yet or anything, some little number of readers. Eventually, one can reach that point, but you've just got to keep at it year on year on year and have the political stamina to say, we're not going to come in and evaluate a program after just two years or three years or even ten mm. when some steps will have been made but not that many to, to really have something that let's say let's say you get a literate 10 year old reader of Yulno there's not that much for them to read mm. because it, that, that's a big a big job to produce all of that so I think that's also just this lack of staying power mm. of the Australian political class. Well, we, we see it in, you know, the term can't of prime can't ministers, Can't even keep a prime example. minister, let alone yeah. a policy. Uh, but, you know, policies, uh, that's just one of the biggest problems, mm. I think, mm. in general policy in Aboriginal <coughs> issues, not just in education and not just in language. There's sort lack of constant, of restless turnover. Lack of policy. It's yeah. a complete... Yeah avoidance of it, you know, the glaring comparison with New Zealand where mm. um, there's even national legislation to protect language. Um, this country has done absolutely nothing, you know, you can dig around on the... I was asked by the New South Wales State Government to write a paper about language, language policies in Australia, particularly as they relate to our Indigenous languages and I said, well, look, I can give you a half a page now. You don't have to give me $10,000 to... I can tell you there's nothing that's of any value to you now out there. There's, there have been attempts to write policies. There have been great ideas. Yeah. Jolo Bianco's effort years ago to have a national mm. languages centre about all languages in Australia, not only the Indigenous languages, um, should have been kept going. Um, and, um, you know, the New South Wales government had a bit of a stab at it. They couldn't even find their own policy online. Um, there was one ch the Gillard government attempted to put in place, but Julia was... <laughs> what was she doing? Uh, she was shot down for being photographed knitting on the front of some women's magazine mm. or something. We got rid of our only female prime minister very quickly. Um, and so all her good ideas went out with her. So... You know, there's nothing. You can do a bit of a trawl and there's nothing. Um, so until we actually 
take on board that um, we need to have policy around multilingualism generally in Australia, mm. not just for our indigenous languages, mm. but the whole attitude, you know, the, we need an attitudinal change. Apparently, every language of the world has somebody in this country that speaks it. That's pretty extraordinary. I don't know whether that's absolutely true, but it was told mm. to me by some very important linguist, maybe Michael, not I'm not sure. But certainly this country would have a lot of the languages of the world represented, mm. including a lot of the indigenous languages. Yeah. Um, and yet, who would know this? Who would even know what they were listening to? It's extraordinary. Mm. And just on that last point, I mean, one issue uh, which has to do with how this information is gathered is, I mean, Australia's census questions on language are pretty mm. hopeless. Mm. And we've already mentioned this a couple of times this, this morning when Elaine yeah. talked about her, like, dream, yep. uh, one of her dreams. Uh, but one of the reasons it's hard to get information on language in the census is partly just a lack of energy and interest, yep. but partly what they regard as privacy issues. So if there's fewer than 10 speakers of a language, as I understand it, that information can't be divulged because they say it makes the person too <coughs> easy to identify. So once you get down to small languages, uh, it's difficult to gather that information at national level. Mm. Maybe just to add. So whilst I don't know the specifics of what you're talking about, I mean, Jackie's right. I mean, around the policy issue, um, one of the things we have learnt is that uh, unless you control the policy, if you're the hand that holds, the, that writes the policy, it makes it really, really hard. So I talked about the Kōanga Reo movement being a movement and then becoming an institution. There's over a thousand regulations if you want to set up a Kōanga Reo. So when it first started and it mushroomed, it was done in people's backyards, uh, in their back rooms, or on our traditional uh, marae and things like that. Once it's the policy now, in order to get funded, is you have to, it gets regulated by the Ministry of Education. And consequently, most of them shut down because they didn't meet all 1,060-something regulations. And they can be things that actually go against our own traditions. So for example, when those who, are those who established their kohanga in the traditional meeting house, um, the Ministry of Education requires you to have a separate kind of way of um, cha uh, changing area. That would modify our traditional meeting house by meeting that. So they had to take them off the marae and into a early childhood centre. And that's just one of quite a number. Uh, if you have a puddle, literally a puddle, outside your facility, you can be shut down for that. And even um, those who had their rivers next to their meeting houses and no fencing, you get shut down. So the policies are, you know, if you don't control them and they recognise uh, your own indigenous significance, for example, for those rivers, nobody's ever drowned on those rivers because they have their own guardians and mm. you know they've been the home space for generations and generations. Ministry of Education is not interested in it. They want you to put a fence up <laughs> and you can't afford it because you're not uh, necessarily resourced mm -hmm. with anything. So it is one thing, you know, with the latest legislation, one of the things we learned, not from a Māori person, but actually from 
one of New Zealand's most respected uh, policy people, um, Dame Margaret Baisley, when I was doing the review of that, and she gets, she's like the government clean-up guy. She <laughs> goes in and she sorts out and she reviews everybody, and she's, you know, lots of respect for her. And that was the one thing she talked talk to us about, the recommendations we made for the new legislation. You need to ensure that the right people hold the pen on the policy, because without it, it means nothing. Mm. So we were creating a new independent statutory body for Māori that represents all regions, um, how to ensure that they don't become just a, a white elephant in our new structure is finding ways to give them the ability and empower them to write the policies for our communities. Because languages are taught, uh, are caught, not taught. And that's the thing that we forget, that when we grew up in our own families, we weren't given grammar lessons by our parents. They just talked to us. And you catch the language, you don't teach the language. But we buy into the mainstream way of uh, thinking about language acquisition. Mm -hmm. And we put a lot of emphasis on proficiency. So we buy into the mainstream thinking that proficiency is the ultimate. And yet, they could be proficient in traditions, uh, in understanding knowledges and reading the environment, but proficiency testing in a schooling system is always literacy-based or numeracy-based and not necessarily geared towards the community themselves or the way they see the world. So it's a, often we, we uh, buy in to the value system of our coloniser and sometimes we don't even recognise it, that we become more oppressive uh, than the oppressor um, because we buy into that sense of okay, you need to learn how to speak English because if you'll never be successful at school, well, that's a lot of rubbish, you know. So it's uh, if you are writing policy, it's like make sure you've worked out all the fish hooks um, because in the first legislation, we had it and we had nothing. We just had this glorified commission. Uh, now we have a bit of sense of actually we've got a job to do. Such amazing, uh, great comments to round us out and I know there are heaps of other questions. We've run right out of time though. Uh, thanks so much for, for all of your time. I know we could talk about this all afternoon. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for our panel this afternoon. <laughs> Professor Jackie Troy, Professor Rowinia Higgins and Professor Nick Evans as well. Uh, many thanks. I do appreciate your insights now and also yeah, all of the discussions over the last couple of days. Uh, well, that does bring us to the end of the uh, official proceedings for today. And it's my great pleasure to welcome to give you some closing remarks uh, the Director General here of the National Library of Australia, Dr. Marie Louise Ayres. Ladies and gentlemen, please make her welcome. Friends, thanks so much for being here uh, over this weekend for this conference, Language Keepers. I'm really delighted that so many of you could attend and in fact that you've stayed. It's 4.30 on a Sunday afternoon and you're still here. And I hope that, like me, that you feel, um, I feel a great sense of delight that we've been able to 
have this event simultaneously closing Cook in the Pacific with its emphasis on voice and languages and to welcome in UNESCO's um, International Year of Indigenous Languages. Now, over the course of this weekend, we've learned so much. In 2016, the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues estimated that 40% of the estimated 6,700 languages spoken around the world were in danger, in danger. And in Australia, 90% of our languages are considered endangered. But as we've heard over the weekend, those languages are not lost. Um, I committed to communi communities yesterday, we will never again refer to lost languages or cultures um, in this library. Um, some were stolen. Uh, they haven't disappeared. Some of them are sleeping. I love the way that Auntie Lynette said yesterday that the language is sleeping under the earth, you know, waiting for people to be back on country. Some are in the hearts and memories of elders. And as Kim Scott reminded us yesterday, might need to be coaxed gently, slowly, and in very much in community context, back into the light. Many, I think, are hiding in our archives, and we've heard quite a lot about this today. I've spent a lot of my career working with archives, and. For quite a few years when I'd be turning off the lights, leaving the manuscript stacks at the end of the day, I often used to imagine all the people whose archives were there conversing, you know, the conversations that would be going on when we had gone home. And I confess I only ever heard them conversing in English. That was my frame of reference. And I think one of the real um, learnings for me over the last couple of years, and especially over this weekend, is that archives like ours, like Paradisec, IATSIS, museums, libraries around the country actually have these voices and words uh, singing from our shelves, but just waiting for the right listener. And if there's a bit of hope in that, it's that like so many who have talked over this weekend about being custodians of their languages, we too are custodians here for the very long term. And if those voices and songs don't find the right listener in my time, then they surely will in the future. So if you enjoyed your Nunawal lesson this morning, because this is our local language here, I'm really pleased to announce that one of our major activities for the International Year of Indigenous Languages will be an exhibition in our Treasures Gallery on the Nunawal language. That will open on the 28th of August, give or take a bit. In partnership with the Nunawal community, we'll be looking at the relationship between country, peoples, place and language, and the exhibition will display archival and pictorial material from the library's collection that's related to the Can Canberra region and to the continuing vibrant culture and language of the Nunawal community. Of particular interest in this exhibition will be how the landscape and its flora and fauna bear witness to this presence. And thank you, Nicholas, for kind of changing that frame of reference to say that, you know, learning a different language, you're going to change, of course, inevitably how you think about the country that you're on. Um, and of course, we'll be looking at that in relation to Nunawal names on material in the collection. And our labels will be reflections by local community members um, 
you know, giving their accounts of, of what we're actually seeing and experiencing. Now, that exhibition will also feature OPI. Now, a few linguists in the room have probably seen OPI. Um, it's a language robot um, developed by linguists. And last I heard, I think there were about five of them in community up at Barmaga. Um, so, OPI is a family-friendly interactive that um, here will enable people to learn a little Nunawal. And the content on OPI will also be developed in consultation with the Nunawal community. I've been thinking about OPI, about this little robot, because I saw OPI in February, this time last year actually, at a, um, a conference on the Gold Coast on Indigenous languages that just, you know, opened my mind. And I've been thinking about this little robot over here because um, I've been thinking that buried deep in our family photograph archive at home is a photo of my daughter, then aged nine, at North Ainsley Primary School with a robot. And for the life of me, I can't remember what the robot was supposed to do. What I do remember, though, is, and I think back now, I don't think that anybody thinking about that robot going into a school where, in fact, there were 47 home languages spoken, ever thought about a robot as a way of building a tiny sense of the richness of Indigenous languages. Her daughter, my granddaughter, is catching English at the moment. She's only 17 months old. And I'm really wondering if sometime during her time at North Ainsley Primary School in the near future, she might be learning a little Nunawal, at least in her classrooms and, and community. So I'm a born optimist. I'm going to go for yes, but I hear you when you say there are big steps backwards as well. So thanks so much for attending Language Keepers um, th th this weekend. Um, it is the end of our formal proceedings, but I would certainly like you to come up to the foyer to enjoy some music and a drink before departing. And just also to let you know that um, I think you'll have seen how busy the um, uh, the exhibition gallery is at the moment with people crowding in to cook in the Pacific for its last couple of days. So this is your last chance to see it, um, to see um, both the, the half of the collection that comes from here, you'll see that again, but half of what's in that exhibition comes from elsewhere and you'll never see things put together in quite this way again. So please do come and enjoy and also hop upstairs and see Beauty Rich and Rare, which is such a beautiful, immersive sound and light experience on level four, illuminating the natural beauty of Australia, uh, but through the eyes of Sir Joseph Banks. And uh, Ray, thank you for your comment earlier about some of our attendees um, you're overhearing them saying, I expected to learn a little bit more about Indigenous senses of that fauna and flora. So doesn't that give you a sense of hope? We might not have quite got it there, but that's what they're wanting. So, And they're 50s white people like me. So the bookshop will be open until 7pm. So if you want to make use of your conference delegate 10% discount, present the voucher on the back of your lanyard to a bookshop staff. And thank you once again for attending the conference. I hope to see you all back at the National Library, your National Library, very soon. Thank you. Thank you.